Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, word, and fellowship. If you'd like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. Happy Father's Day. Uh, If you're a dad, high five is not an easy job when it's well done, right? Boom, high five, guys. Happy Father's Day. Uh, It's just so good to be with you in the house of the Lord. Today, we start our series in the book of Esther. I thought to myself, how perfect, start Esther on Father's Day. So we will, (laughs) right? Um, And so I'm going to invite you to open to Esther, but before we get into that, I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro. Now, we're just kicking off Esther, so there's a lot of stuff we need to know, right? Uh, But as we begin in in Esther, excuse me, we need to ask questions. As we do any time we start a new book or we go into reading our Bibles. But context is keen, you've heard. We need to ask questions such as, who wrote this book? When did this take place? What is the literary style of this book? Who is it about? Who are the main characters? What's the overarching message in here? And so what I'd like to do is zoom out just a little bit and consider where this story takes place. Because sometimes, if you're like me or if you were like me, like I was, sometimes I would read portions out of the Bible, but I had no idea how it fit into the meta-narrative of the scriptures. All right, so it's important for us to just take a moment and look to see, okay, where does this fall in the timeline of, let's say, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, of the story of God that points to Christ? How does this make sense to us today? And so, again, zoom out, let's go to the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis, the Bible informs us that God created the heavens and the earth, and that in it he made man, and he placed man over the earth to have dominion in it and to populate it, to multiply it and become a nation, essentially. And so he does that. And I do have pictures. If you want to try to follow along with me, good luck. If you know the Bible stories, if not, oh well. And so it's just kind of just to help you out, okay? This is how the Bible starts. We all know this story, right? And so fast forward a little bit, then we find ourselves in Exodus, and that begins with a list of names, and it is the names of Jacob's sons, who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, why Israel? Because Jacob is renamed by the Lord Israel. He's given a new name. And so from his sons, we begin to see a nation that's being developed, being formed, and we call it Israel. Then, fast forward a little bit more, in Joshua we read that God's plan is to supply his people, who are the Israelites now, with a place to belong. And so there's this promised land that's offered and that's given. And this promised land is seen through Joshua's leadership despite Moses' death. So Moses was the great leader of Israel who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then Joshua takes over and leads them into the actual promised land. And so now we see the story developing, the story of the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites, the same people. They're all the same people. And so after entering and making the land that was, or making home the land that was promised, Israel was continually defended by the Lord. And so the Lord raises up different judges to defend Israel from their oppressors or from their potential opponents or oppressors, you know. And so the Lord is constantly defending Israel. He is their acting king, their acting God, their acting provider, their acting defender. And everything is just uh, in line with the Lord. But here's the thing. 
the Israelites constantly forgot the Lord. And so then terrible things happen. And so they cried out to the Lord. And so the Lord raises up a judge. And so the Lord judge delivers them. And so then times are good now. And so they forget the Lord. And so then terrible things happen and so on and so forth. And then there's this cycle. And we read that more in the book of Judges. Then a prophet and judge named Samuel, you've heard of him. He anoints the first king of Israel at the request of the people. And it was good with God. He said, give them what they're asking for. Just warn them what they're asking for, though. And he does. He anoints the first king, King Saul, and thus the beginning of the era of the kings. After Saul comes David and Solomon and then all these other guys, right? And so we have this era of the kings. We have this prophet Samuel who warns them, but nevertheless, they get into this mess. And again, people forget who God is. And then uh, the, there's acts of judgment that God allows Israel, en- Israel to experience. And so he allows his enemies, their enemies, to overtake them. And that's a consequence of rebelling and forgetting of the Lord. And so men known as prophets continually warned the Israelites of the consequential judgment that was to come as a result of a loss of reverence and worship of God. And then, fast forward a little bit, The Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar invaded and exiled the Israelites from their home, and it was destroyed. The Lord allowed it. And so they were removed from their homeland, exiled into foreign lands. Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. Israel was no longer a people with a place. They were exiled into these foreign lands, and a wise uh, God-fearing man we hear about in the scriptures named Daniel comes into the picture, and he was among those who were exiled, but also found favor over the king. At the time, first it was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar actually loses his mind, and if you're interested in the story, read the story. He literally goes insane, and then he's overtaken by the Persian king named Cyrus. Now, Daniel wins favor in Cyrus's uh, uh, eyes, and so Cyrus is actually uh, the one who uh, then has a son named Darius, and Darius is the one who throws Daniel into the pit of lions, and he does it regretfully. And then here we have this new king named uh, uh, Darius. Now, within the rail, rail, reign of Cyrus and Darius, there's a prophet and a uh, man of God named Ezra and Nehemiah who are given the authority or the permission to return to their homeland to build Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem. And so the Israelites once again find favor in the eyes of the Lord and they go back and they rebuild. Now Cyrus, this is Cyrus right here, he has a son and he names him Darius and Darius reigns and he has a couple of sons who rule for just a brief time and thereafter his third son takes the throne who is named Ahasuerus. And this is him, the next picture here, the black background. That's the best picture we have of King Ahasuerus. And you're thinking, that's a funny name. But the fact of the matter is, I bet that you've heard of this king before. I'm, f- I'm sure that you're familiar about this guy because Ahasuerus is the Hebrew rendition of his name. There's a different one in Persian, which is harder for me to say, so I'm just going to skip over that one. But the one that you might have heard is his Greek rendition of the name, and that's Xerxes. How many of you guys have heard of King Xerxes? Right? If you've seen the movie 300, which I do not recommend, you have probably heard of this guy. Obviously, he doesn't look like a man made out of gold, and he's not seven foot tall. 
Now, history does tell us that he was high in stature and he was a very powerful and influential person. This is Xerxes. So I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes. And some Bible translations give us that name, Xerxes. So this is how we fall into that picture. This is, or this story, this is where this story takes place. And here's the thing, though. Every time a new king took the throne in Persia and anywhere, anywhere else for that matter, they had to deal with the first order of business. And the first order of business was usually, hey, we have to settle revolts because that was the best time for anybody to revolt against their oppressing king. All right, so at the time that King Xerxes takes the throne, there's two nations that revolt against them. One is Egypt and the other one is Babylon. <laughs> and so first order of business, he goes, he takes his army and he deals with Babylon and then he deals with Egypt. And three years later, after taking the throne, he comes home and he throws a fiesta. And this is where the story begins, the story of Esther. I hope that was helpful for you to see the timeline. Now, remember, the, this is a little bit of a side story in a sense because the main line of the story, of the story of the Jews, of the Israelites, now they're back in Israel rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the, the nation there, and there's a good portion of Jews who are there. But this is in regards to those who stayed in these regions of Persia. And so there is where this particular story takes place. Now, this book is interesting. It's interesting in several ways because a lot of people say, why did this book even make it into the canon of Scripture? What does it really have to do with the meta narrative of Scripture? This is the one book that you have probably heard that does not directly reference the name of the Lord. Have you heard that before? And so you might be curious and ask, well, then why is it in there? Well, it's interesting because this is a book of providence. This is a book of the Lord's sovereignty. This is a book that teaches us that even though the name of the Lord is not heard of or known, or maybe he seems absent in certain times and places, the fact of the matter is that he's always present. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere present. And so like every other story that we read in the Bible, God is also present here. And so this is where the book of Esther starts. And so what I'd like to just share with you before we begin as well is certain characters, you know, that will be presented here as the series develops, uh, uh, undevelops, yeah. Uh, and, and the first question is, who wrote this book? Well, the, the quick answer is no one really knows. But certain, a lot of scholars speculate that perhaps Mordecai, and Mordecai is going to be a very key character that we read in this story, but not today. He will not be introduced today. Mordecai was a father, uh, if you would, but he's a special dad because he takes on his cousin who is orphaned. He has a beautiful young cousin who it takes on as his daughter. Her name is Hadassah. And so Mordecai does something that I think is truly key and valuable for any father figure to do, is he raised her up according to the decrees of the Lord, according to the laws of the Lord, according to God's will. Mordecai was very, very um, uh, in tuned with the scriptures that he had in, in his day, right? The Old Testament. And so he valued them and he knew the importance of imparting this to his family. And so we have Mordecai who potentially wrote this book. We don't know for sure. He has this beautiful, I'm just gonna call her his daughter because he does adopt her as his own, Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is Esther. Now, this is where 
it kind of goes off. So I'm hoping that this is enough foundation for us to somewhat understand what it is that we're getting into. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Esther chapter one. I'm just going to look into the first nine verses today. Again, this is more of an introductory sermon. This is going to be very uh, informational. Now, what style, what's the literary style for this book? It's a history book. So we're going to have a lot of history. How many of you guys hated history in high school? I'm sorry. You know, because this is going to be a history lesson for the most part. That was one of my favorite subjects, by the way. I didn't want, like math. And so let's go to Esther chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. And, and the title of today's sermon is, Only God is Awesome. Why? Because sometimes we accredit things or circumstances to be awesome, but they're truly far from it, aren't they? It's sometimes we think certain things are awesome, but we'll see. We'll see that as we read this, you might, might think, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome. But only God is truly awesome. Let's go to Esther chapter 1. It says this, now, in the days of Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the province were before him while he showed the riches of his royal and glory of his royal and glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days 180 days and when these days were completed the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel both great and small a feast lasting for 7 days in the court of the garden of the king's palace there were right there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. Porphyry? porphyry I'm so poor I don't know this kind of stuff you know what I mean it's porphyry okay and press pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavish according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Bow your heads with me and come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would help us understand what you have for us today, that your word would be life-changing, Father, and equipping to do the work that you've called us to do. Thank you, Father, for being truly awesome. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Again, only God is awesome. Sometimes we accredit certain circumstances or things as awesome. For example, I think that we all do this often. Sometimes I say things like, that game was awesome. Yes, we've said that. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that I had a friend who used to correct me anytime I said that was awesome. He said, no, only God is awesome, right? And so that's what we do. We just have the tendency to make smaller things awesome. We think that little things are great things. Like this morning, I said to my wife, man, that new razor I, I bought was awesome. That's good. You know, did you see that movie? It was awesome. And so anything that's as exciting, we say it's awesome. But for something to be truly awesome, by definition, it must be extremely impressive or daunting. It's inspiring awe. That is something that truly is awesome. It's like when you go, and you, you're, you're, you're actually speechless because you're just 
completely moved by it. That's what is truly awesome or something done extremely well and excellently. The truth is, and I think that we all know this, is only God is truly awesome. He is the one who deserves all glory, praise, recognition, for he is awesome. He is the creator of all things, but too often we or someone we know tries to be recognized and honored as awesome. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, those names are synonymous, uh, certainly thought highly of himself, didn't he? So let's read verses 1 through 4 again and break it down. Uh, as we go through this, he says, Now in the days of King Xerxes, I'm going to call him, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, just for the sake of, of understanding here, this is a lot. No king ruled this kind of property. No king had a kingdom or an empire this big. This is quite large. In fact, there was nothing matched to the, uh, the Persian Empire until Rome came in and established a empire. But at this time, this is the largest empire that had ever existed. And you have this, this long range, range of, of, of land. And it says... In those days when King Hazuerus or Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. Now, the army of Persian media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. It says 180 days. In other words, this is a show-off session for 180 days. Do you know how long that is? That's six months. That's a six-month-long party. Have you ever been to a six-month-long party? I throw a party for three days and I'm tired. You know what I mean? Or I run out of resources. The cake runs out. But this guy is throwing a party for six months. Now, the first point that I want to make here is that God's people should not adore worldly arrogance. And that's exactly what we see here. At this time, Xerxes was the most powerful king of the world, and the Persian Empire was undisputedly the greatest, you know, and its might went unmatched. And so Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was extremely arrogant as a result, so much so that he throws himself this massive party, and he invites everyone, and you would think that the invitation is to appreciate everyone who was a part of these battles that he was a part of, but no, it was to the contrary. It was, hey, come see me. You get to be a part of this. You get to see my glory. You get to see my splendor. I'm not really throwing a feast for you. I'm throwing a feast for me, okay? And you get to see me, and you get to be a part of this, and you get to eat my things, and you get to enjoy the things that I'm offering to you. He's making himself as though he is a god. And so I hate to ask this, but how many people do you know who have thrown themselves a party? I actually do know someone who's thrown themselves a party. You know, but there's a little level of arrogance that comes to that. You know, that's something that others should do to honor others. But we shouldn't do that for ourselves. That's, again, arrogance. And so Xerxes invites the army of Persia and Media and the nobles of, and the governors. It says these are high status people, if you see this. Just to show, it says here, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his, great, of his greatness for 180 days. I can't even, I honestly can't even imagine being at a feast or a party for that long. And so the intention behind this again is to promote himself. He offered pleasures in return for adoration. This is how Satan works, folks, and we have to be careful. Satan offers pleasures, offers distractions, offers things that would force us to see him and the goodness that there is in this word. And I say goodness, quote unquote, because they're truly just distractions. 
And so in a sense, we look at the worldly possessions, the worldly riches, and then we lose sight of who God is. And so John, 1 John, excuse me, 2.16 tells us, warns us for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of eyes and pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And in Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, only God, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is the one who deserves your glory. Only he does. Psalm 96, 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Therefore, as God's people, we know better than to place our adoration and confidence in worldly wealth and popularity and possessions and power and recognition. That's not where we get our worth. That's not what we should be focused on. That's not what our praise and our adoration should fall to. If we're not regularly considering the Lord's greatness, that we've become, then we've been become prone to kind of fall into that trap to consider other things. But when we regularly consider the Lord's greatness, we, um, we begin to you know, have this wonderful posture of worship that is actually due to him. And so reading about God who is and who he is and what he's done, it helps recalibrate our hearts and, and it really reminds us you know, of the true glory that he possesses. And so that's why it's important to come together as believers. That's why it's important to come together in fellowship as the body of Christ and to dive into the word of God so that we are recalibrated, so that we reset our minds on the things that are matter, the things that are eternal and not the things that are temporal. Okay. And so Xerxes really truly thought he was awesome, didn't he? But what he didn't know and what he didn't recognize is that everything that he possessed, provinces, Wealth, riches, food, glory, all of that was made by God himself. And so when we recognize that, when we know that everything that we have comes from him anyway, you know, then we are able to, again, recalibrate our hearts and minds and give glory where glory is due. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now Xerxes thought 180 days was impressive. That's what he thought. I'm going to throw a big party. People will definitely see my splendor and the glory. But what he didn't know is that from the moment of creation, heaven and earth and everything that's created had declared the glory and the goodness of God forever. It has never ceased. And so 180 days is nothing to an eternity. The things that are the Lord's will praise him, will celebrate him, will honor him, will revere him forever. And so praise our God. His praise will never cease. There will always be praise for him because he is God and he is awesome. Now, something that we should note before continuing, and I think this is important, is because we see a lot of this today, is a display of evil power does not necessarily mean that God's power is diminishing. You know, sometimes I've been asked that, is, is God just kind of like fading away? What's going on? You know, uh, I forget what year, but someone declared that God was dead or whatnot. That was, I forget when was that. But the fact of the matter is God's power is not diminishing. Make no mistake, God has no rival and no equal. He has never been and never will be uh, threatened or thwarted. Okay, so to be Xerxes, the great king of Persia, is nowhere near being the sovereign overall. No matter how much power or, uh, uh, or wealth a person may possess or see or wield, he or she is no threat to God's providence. In fact, it is a part of God's providence that they have the power and the wealth that they do. And so therefore, God's people should not adore worldly arrogance. 
And so that's something that we see here. Let's not be deceived by the things that look shiny and attractive, but instead focus our eyes on our God, the creator of all things. In the same manner, God's people are not in awe of worldly abundance. Or sometimes maybe we are, but we shouldn't be. Look at verse 5 through 7. It says this. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people a present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's place. Now, listen to the description here. I butchered it earlier. Maybe I can get through this time. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones i don't even know what some of those things are mother of pearl sounds fancy what is mother of pearl <laughs> it sounds great doesn't it but this is the thing this is worldly abundance sometimes it's distracting for us sometimes we like wow that's very impressive and sometimes they're designed for us to have that reaction but the the key here is that we should not be in awe of worldly abundance because when we put our awe and our fascination such things that means we're distracted we're not really looking at the things that matter and the things that matter for eternity now the scriptures here say that uh, after the 100 days 180 days of parting partying, King Xerxes does what I think most of us would do after six month party, right? He throws an after party. You know, in the youth group, we call it the afterglow. It's like we partied for six months. Let's end it with a party. But it's a seven day party. No problem. Or it's a little party. And so, uh, you know, to me, it's 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 just kind of like Again, a display, the showing off, the splendor of that person the person has. And this time, he's opening up to everyone. He's inviting everybody, including his servants. And I can't think of a better way to thank servants than having them prepare more meals, wash more dishes, and serve more people. Do you see the arrogance of this king? All right? After all, there is plenty to go around. And that was the whole point, is to show off the stuff that he has. And then the writer of this book goes on from describing the king's uh, provinces and, and all of his possessions. And he goes and describes everything that's extravagant. I mean, if you look at this list again, white cotton curtains, I mean, I don't even know what this stuff is. I can't even fathom what it is unless you put it on a movie for me to be able to see it, right? Because my house doesn't look like I don't have a couch of gold and silver. I don't know why I would want that. It doesn't even sound comfortable, does it? But this guy has all this stuff, and the writer makes it a point to describe these things because the whole point is to see the things that he's showing off. The distraction that the world has for us sometimes really is what deters us or uh, detours us from knowing and, and seeing the true God. So let us not be deceived. So for those who find their identity and possessions, they could never obtain what they truly desire, what they truly need. Now you've heard of John Rockefeller probably. He's a wealthy businessman. A journalist asked him uh, one day, how much money is enough? What would you answer to that question? How much money is enough? Remember, he's a businessman. He's super wealthy. He, in fact, in his time, he was the wealthiest man in the world. The journalist asked him, how much money is too much? And he said, just a little bit more just a little bit more and that's the reality when we're pursuing uh, uh, the, the wealth that we find in the world here the things possessions we will never have that sense of satisfaction it will never be enough we will always be looking for just a little bit more and just like Rockefeller in this example having so much already Xerxes still wanted more 
In fact, history tells us what happens in this party. And this is an extra biblical source, but a lot of historians believe that after the three years that Xerxes went and uh, 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 settled the revolts, he comes home, he celebrates, and during that celebration is when he plans to overtake Greece. So he settled Babylon, he settled Egypt, which, which were huge places in their time. The, world, the, world's wo were the world's wealthiest nations, he already has possession of them, but he didn't have Greece. He didn't have Athens, and he didn't have Sparta. And this is where that movie 300 kind of comes in. And so the history books tell us that this is what they were trying to conspire as a plan to overtake Greece because it wasn't enough. And you probably know the story, Xerxes actually fails in taking Greece, which was a good humble pie for him. But that's not what we're talking about today. And so like many people today, Xerxes lacked contentment. And so he always searched for the next thing. He was always driven by the things that he didn't have. He was always hyper-focused on what he wanted but didn't have. Right? In Christ, however, we have all that we need. Remember Psalm 23? It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning I shall not lack. I have all that I need. When we have salvation through Jesus Christ, there's this sense of satisfaction, there's this sense of fulfillment, knowing that this world is so temporary compared to what's in eternity to come, right? Paul warns Timothy as well. In 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, for those, or excuse me, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As believers, as the redeemed of God, through Jesus Christ, we must always remember that, um, that, that, that who we are is not based on people's opinions of us or what people say about us or the things that we have, our possessions, but rather it is fully based on what God says about us through Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We are redeemed. We are saved by grace. And we are going to be heirs of what the Lord has for us, which is amazing. So no matter how, um, how fancy someone's couch may be, right? No matter uh, how much stuff someone may have, this does not compare to the treasures and the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you know that? Do you know that there's nothing better, nothing more satisfying than to have the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ? I hope that you do, because when we know that, then we're really, truly able to recognize God is awesome. If we really think about how that comes to be, that we're able to be saved by grace, man, that's awesome. That he made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, that's awesome. Truly, only God is awesome. And as God's people, we should never be in awe of worldly abundance, but we should be in awe of what Christ has done for us in that while we were still yet sinners, he died for us and we were able to be reconciled to the Father and we are able to be an eternity in his presence and that is awesome. This stuff will perish. When you pass from this place, this stuff doesn't matter, right? And so let us not fall in awe in the things that are the of the world. And then finally, God's people should never be afraid of worldly authority. Now this is an interesting one. I want to explain to you what I mean by this because I'm not saying that we ought to lose respect for those in authority, okay? We should still respect those in authority. After all, Romans and 13.1, as long as other passages, uh, say things like, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, God is sovereign even over the things that we don't like. 
God is in charge of even the things that we don't necessarily agree with. God is still present even when he seems absent. So we still ought to submit to the authorities that we have. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't ever do what is against the will of the Lord because we're afraid of somebody else. Does that make sense? We should, we should absolutely know what the will of the Lord is and abide by that regardless of what the nations, the kings, the authorities say. Daniel's a great example of that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are great examples of that. There's decrees to, for, for idolatry, essentially, but they will not bow. And so likewise, we shouldn't be afraid of those in authority. But what am I, why am I saying this with this particular passage in mind? Let's read 8 through 9. It says this, And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of this palace to do as each man desired. Now you're probably thinking, what does that mean, there is no compulsion? Now, this actually is key to the kind of uh, authority that Xerxes has. And I want to explain this to you. King Xerxes had, in this particular case, set aside the custom that everyone had to drink whenever he drank. Now, think about this. Why did he have to say this? This guy was so arrogant. This guy was so into himself that he had decreed that everyone had to take a drink when he took a drink. And that's the only time you could drink. And you can only eat when he ate. So that required for your eyes to be on him always, because if you didn't do this right, it was punishable by the law. And so look at that. Look at that level of arrogance. Look at that fear that this person invokes, because if you don't do what I do, if your eyes are not on me all the time, then you're not worshiping me the way that you should. This guy is mandating, requiring everyone here to keep his eyes on him. What a level of arrogance. And I don't know if he knew this, but this mandate here is actually quite interesting that he lowers it and he says, there is no compulsion, <sighs> right? But the problem is when you have a king like this, you're afraid, you usually have this sense of, of, of just, I would say, unhealthy reverence to them because you're afraid of what may happen to them. And so this is a ridiculous level of micromanagement. He legislated how people drank. He legislated how people ate. He legislated when they do things. He legislated everything about you. And so even though you're in this extravagant place, even though you're in this place full of riches and wealth, you're still a slave to it. Do you see that? You're still under someone's authority. You're still under someone's dictatorship. You're still not enjoying the freedom of the life. And you would think that this is all wonderful. This is beautiful here. And so the lavish descriptions of everything, of everything for what? It doesn't matter. You're under somebody's thumb. It does not compare to how the Lord is sovereign over us. The Lord is still very aware of everything that we do. He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And I like to call him, he's a dictator, but he's a benevolent dictator. And it's actually a good thing that he's always present in our lives because he does not oppress, but he liberates his people. He gives us freedom. He gives us life. He gives them, he, he, he pours love on us, uh, compassion. These are beautiful things that are just not fair for us to receive from our God. This is, this is what it looks like to have a king aside from God. But when we have God who is truly awesome, not just awesome because of what he can do and what he possesses, but because of how he deals with us. Think about that. How is it that he is mindful for me? How is it that this king of king and lords of lo lord of lords who has everything and needs nothing, how is it that he still loves me? How is it that he still is mindful of me and cares for me? How is it that he has compassion for me? How is it that he takes the time to notice me, you know, and to provide for me and to take care of me? That's beautiful. 
And so we shouldn't fear anybody, but we should only think of the Lord and have a reverence for him, for he is the only truly one who could condemn us above all. The Lord reigns. Now, though I care about who is elected, I'm sure that you guys do too, and though I care about who is uh, governing and who's uh, you know, in office and being leaders, I, I do care about that stuff, I can still sleep well at night because I know that the Lord reigns. It's not them. I can st- st- I can, I'd be like, you know what? Elections are coming up. Things look kind of messy. The Lord reigns. That's what matters. And he's sovereign. And whatever happens is meant to happen. And we have to trust that. And we have to trust that he's good and he's working all things for our good for, the, for those who love him, right? And so we can just definitely be reassured that it is God who reigns above anyone else who tries to tyrant or to dictate our lives. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who we ought to fear is a God who is truly awesome. And then in this last verse, we have mentioned to Queen Vashti, who also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. We're gonna uh, use her more of a cliffhanger today, not really get into who Queen Vashti is, a lot more of who she is next week. So what do we make of all this that we just went through? What do we do here, okay? What, what is it about this introductive passage that should really uh, dwell on? And first, I just have a series of questions for us to really think about. Did you notice the heavily descriptive language used by the author? Did you notice that? Did you know that this is the, uh, probably the most descriptive section that we have in regards to earthly possessions in the entire Bible? We have some descriptive things, but this is the most, you know? So definitely intentional. Did you notice the emphasis on who Ahasuerus or Xerxes was and what he possessed? Did you notice that there is a real emphasis there? Did you notice that God was not directly referred to and neither were his people in this passage? This is an introductive passage to a, Bible, to, to a book. Usually it's right from the get-go. <clears throat> and did you find that this uh, described a, a lifestyle that's very similar to what we're dealing with today? Did you notice that? that what's going on here is not too far off from what's going on here, (laughs) right? And have you noticed that the world we live in is also more and more godless? Yeah? And so with that in mind, I just have a couple of takeaways for you. One, don't be surprised by no worldly acknowledgement of God. That's going to happen less and less. But we shouldn't be surprised that the world does not acknowledge God for It is the world that hates the Lord, right? They hated him first is what Christ says. And so sometimes we may think that God is clearly missing, but the fact is that he is never missing. He is omnipresent. He is always everywhere present and he is in total control. When he sees fit, the Lord reveals himself to be the ultimate and truly awesome God just i think it was yesterday a couple days ago i was talking to alan back there and we were talking about how we both had a similar experience where we were fired from our jobs when our wife's wife was pregnant that's like the worst situation ever right that's that's what happened to both of us in different times obviously but we were both thinking that that was terrible like where's god in this like what's going on can't you see my wife is pregnant and we need money right now especially now we have another baby coming in and we what's going on but it was through that circumstance that everything else began to unfold to lead our paths to where they are today 
In that time, I was working insurance. I was in a corporate office. Never, ever, ever did I imagine that I would serve the Lord. In fact, I swore I would never be in the ministry because my dad was in the ministry. I hated it. All right? And so I get fired from this job, and I get put into a job that I had to do because I was desperate for money, and it was a ministerial job at a men's recovery home that I was afraid of these guys. I didn't want to work with them just to find out that they're teddy bears, and I love them, and I love to see them grow, and the Lord's growing me as well, and one thing leads to the next, and it leads to the next, and the next thing I know, I'm applying for a full-time ministerial job in Tucson. And then one thing leads to another, and now I'm planting a church here. Like, that was not my plan. There was all from a moment where I thought that God was absent in my life. But no, he was doing something. He was very intentional about what was happening. And it was very important for me to go through what I went through. And today, I am so grateful. I know that my friend Alan also has a very similar experience. This career led to the next, and now I'm almost getting promoted. You know, it's, it's just amazing how the Lord truly is ever-present in every bit of our circumstances, even when we think he's not. The next takeaway that I have for you is, do not adopt a worldly agenda, but adore and worship the only awesome God. Now, why do I say that? Because the authority, the culture that we live in sometimes pressures us to adopt a worldly agenda. Now, again, I'm not saying that we need to be rebellious, right? I'm not saying that we need to be awful citizens. I'm saying that we need the mind of the Lord first and foremost. We need to consider what his word says above all things. We need to walk, talk, and live according to godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. And so our influence should be 100% through the scripture. Nothing of eternal value can be found in worldly arrogance. I promise you that. Worldly abundance or worldly authority will not promise you life everlasting. It wouldn't even promise you a good time here now. Maybe just for a moment, but it will wash away. Eternal life, however, is found in knowing God and the one who sent our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Now, the accumulation of power and possessions is not a worthy end. So if that's what we're chasing, if that's what we're pursuing, I think we're distracted. Now, is it wrong to have worldly possessions and power? No, but to God be the glory above all. Amen? Amen. So let us not adopt a worldly agenda, but adore and worship the only awesome God. Fix your eyes on the only one who is truly awesome. Consider the cross, please. Always consider the cross. Consider what Christ has accomplished. Consider his love for us. Really, think about these things. Think about the fact that God took on flesh, which is why we celebrate Christmas, That's awesome. Think about that he walked on this world perfect, without stain, without blemish. That's awesome. Think about that he shared with us who himself through his ministry, we were able to see the Father through him. That's awesome. Think about the fact that he took on the cross, took the punishment that was due to us. That's awesome. And then he dies, and on the third day, He's resurrected. That's awesome. Like if you were there, if you were seeing that, you would be dumbstruck, right? You would be in that sense of awe. You would would truly say, that is awesome. And nothing else compares. Only God is awesome. Christ is awesome. We need to consider the cross constantly. We need to consider what he has done. We need to consider his love for us, what he's accomplished. And when we do this, we begin to praise the Lord fervently. Our hearts get stirred. 
Ephesians 1.21, Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God is awesome. The Lord is great and he's worthy to be praised. This is just the introduction. We haven't even gotten to the meat of this this book, but this is going to be good for us. It's going to be helpful. We're going to see that the Lord is always working, always working, and he's awesome. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, you truly are awesome. You're so good. Father, only you give life, <laughs> and only you give it for eternity, Lord Jesus. Lord, you truly are great. Lord, we ask that you would not allow this to just escape from us, but that we would have hearts and minds that really, truly reflect on who you are, your awesomeness, the things that you've accomplished. as an act of grace, compassion, love, and kindness, Lord. Lord, help us see that, that we would be recalibrated knowing you and what you've done for us, Lord Jesus, and how it matters, that we would also reflect that with our brothers and our sisters. Lord, Lord, we're really sorry for just being distracted, for chasing the things that truly don't matter. And we ask, Father, that you would just fill us with your spirit, with boldness, with readiness, Father, to do the work that you've called us to. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.